0: Of the Christ child born in our midst. Amen. Amen. I don't have to tell you that Christmas this year comes in the midst of gathering gloom. We are no longer shocked by the bad economic news that appears in the headlines day after day. We've been in it too long now to pause long at Christmas time as monthly unemployment figures today quite merrily paraded their worst figures in decades. Even in our relatively sheltered communities of Mill Valley and the greater Bay Area, people are in conversation about struggling between jobs or nervous about whether the next few weeks or months will see them out of work. Finances are strained everywhere. Home values continue to drop. And the government talks in terms of hundreds of billions of dollars of borrowed time and money throwing it into the ailing economy, and yet the situation seems to remain the same for so many, many who are struggling even harder for basics like food, shelter, or health care. We might take some solace that we are not in as hard a situation as our sisters and brothers in, say, Zimbabwe or Afghanistan and yet we are unsettled that our fate is more closely and inexorably related with theirs than we thought even a year ago. Whatever story you bring with you this night and hold in your hearts and prayers, my guess is it probably is connected one way or another with our failing global economy and the growing uncertainty about what 2009 will bring. The stories of the greater world are all laid bare this night before us, alongside our own personal stories, and this peculiar story we hear again retold as we have in Christmases past year after year. question of the story we hear each Christmas is both a question of narrative, that is of story, and a question of theology, that is a question about who God is. And the question boils down to simply this, why does God choose to engage the human family in this way and not Another. For centuries before, Mary and Joseph Peoples the world over had been telling stories about God or gods relating to the human family. Gods who dwelt in the sky, on mountaintops, or beneath the earth, or in the capricious forces of nature. Gods who were constantly cajoling and demanding attention satiation, and obedience from their human subjects. Even the religious tradition into which Jesus is born carries in its scriptures the tribal understandings of a God who flooded the known world when he tired of human corruption. A God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush and claimed a particular people as his own, rescuing them with plagues and portents from their oppressors parting the seas, leading them by miracles and columns of smoke and punishing them when they misbehaved. A God who descended like the fire gods and volcanic spirits onto a mountaintop to deliver the law. A God who occupied a temple in a particular place and a particular time, who demanded sacrifice and anointed leaders over his people a God whose story was writ large and dramatic, just like those old Charlton Heston films, where God made history like a great warrior or a triumphant politician or a hero of old. Only later, while in exile and without a temple, would the ancient Israelites come to fully recognize that a heroic tribal God without a home was effectively useless. The true God of their ancestors and the God speaking through the prophets was one who transcended tribe, time and place and promised something new for a world and a vulnerable people who were often broken by warfare and natural disaster and political corruption. And this truer God had designs for the human family. And yet, this God refused the well worn paths of popularity and military might. Luke opens the story of Jesus' birth with mention of the Roman Empire's expanded power in the first century the emperor Augustus has declared that a registration be taken throughout the empire. Augustus was easily one of the most powerful men who ever lived. Among the most successful of emperors, his divinity was declared by the Senate following his death, and the reach of his military and economic might were almost incalculable. His success reached forward across centuries. The registration that Luke mentions was Augustus doing what sensible rulers of empire had always done and have done since, consolidate power, retrench bureaucracy, refinance the vast imperial machine. God might well have chosen Augustus as a more shrewd and accomplished candidate for Messiah. Indeed some of his contemporaries and even those first hearing these words from Luke thought Augustus might indeed have been the Messiah. But Luke is subtly and not so subtly reminding us that Caesar Augustus, while successful in so many ways in establishing the Pax Romana, was at his best like any other great ruler or old tribal god, reaching down from the sky or the mountaintop or the imperial capital to inflict his designs on the teeming masses, disconnected in most ways from the everyday folk who constitute the vast part of the human family throughout history, oblivious to their stories in the daily grind, oblivious to their joys and sufferings of their eking out a quiet living Oblivious most certainly to a small town in Galilee called Nazareth, and utterly blind to an uncertain couple named Mary and Joseph. That the God of the universe should choose them to start something new is both counterintuitive and unsettling counterintuitive because Mary and Joseph offered the baby Jesus no real clout to inherit. Joseph might have been descended from the house of David, but who wasn't? He was a carpenter, no more than that. And anyway, David's line had long since been replaced by a series of puppet kings under the Roman thumb. Mary offered little but a willingness to listen to angels and accept a most ridiculous proposal that she carry in her womb King David's heir, the Prince of Peace, the child of the Most High God. Whether she confided this to anyone beyond her most intimate kin is doubtful. Who would have believed her? Would you? And that she conceived this child, as the story says, without Joseph's help... And the benefits of wedlock means she was liable to become an object of public scandal. The promised Messiah was getting no political or social help from his parents, thank you very much. That's for sure. Even in the 21st century, children born under such circumstances would not be expected to amount to much, at least in the world's eyes. And this story ought to unsettle us at this time, because as we wrestle with the throes of economic crisis and wave after wave of gloom and doom, as we do this, we are reminded that our true salvation is not in the hands of the powerful. Somehow that doesn't seem to quite make the headlines of the New York Times. In less than a month, the new presidential administration takes office, and as much as we might celebrate or dread that moment, we cannot expect President Obama to reach down any better than an ancient sky god or a shrewd emperor to solve our day-to-day challenges. Any more than Emperor Augustus could in the first century for a lowly couple from Nazareth. No, instead, this Christmas, we are offered a most unlikely gift for troubled times, God born among us and with us in the midst of our struggles and challenges, a God who cries in the night for food and warmth, who cries to be held. Even as we wonder how the bills will get paid this year and this month or even this week, or where the next paycheck is going to come from. a God who is turned away from even simple lodging and is birthed amongst the animals and grime of a stable. A God who experiences our setbacks and our worries as much as our nearest and dearest kin. Now, truth be told, we might have wanted a God who was going to throw thunderbolts from the sky, or perhaps descend upon Mount Tam in a column of smoke. Perhaps a God who would sweep away all our problems along with our enemies, or guard us and our treasures safe with legions of the well armed. Maybe a God who would dispense a new economic model or a financial rescue plan that really works and works quickly. But what we get is a baby, born of a poor mother vulnerable to gossip, and married to a bewildered man who can't even afford to buy his family's way into some decent inn while they're on the road. The message of Christmas, of incarnation, of God not only with us, but God as one of us is a message that God is doing something radically new. And this new thing is not simply an artifact of history confined to a dusty first century village in Palestine. But it is ongoing everywhere and forever. That means that God is already doing a new thing among us during these hard times even while the government is bumbling about in its usual bureaucratic ways, even while we wait for the reins of power to change hands, hopefully for the better. And this new thing is new life, every bit as amazing and precious as a newborn child drawing us back together as community. In fact, this new thing is a child born for us. Christmas means that God belongs to us in all of our peculiarities and strange and unique stories, and that God cannot be bought by princes, presidents, or pundits. Christmas means that God is close at hand when we risk being overcome by anxiety, when we risk being consumed by our struggle to work through all the challenges that this time of year, this time in our lives, this time in our history brings us. It's the sort of good news that the shepherds received, good news for the world that would be forever changed by the new and the unlikely. The God's power rested ultimately with this family of downtrodden, forgotten, and lost rather than the self-important and the influential. That God lives with the teeming unemployed and the underemployed and the hungry and the worried and the concerned in our day. That their stories are our stories and that they matter to God. And God is woven right into the heart of them, just as God finds a way into our hearts this time of year in the tender, fragile and needy gaze of a little baby. And our hopes and lives will grow anew with this little child. So are you ready for this new and unlikely news of God with us? I mean it, are you ready? Do you even have a clue what I'm talking about? Well, if not, take heart. Mary and Joseph really weren't ready either and probably didn't get it completely either. I'm not sure I do. Yet here we are 20 centuries later welcoming this little child, this kernel of hope, this flicker of light in our darkness, And welcoming him with song and prayer. And seeing in him at last the satisfaction of the longings we all carry. For our struggles belong to him. Along with the rest of our lives in all their rough and tumble. And Christ has come to remake it all anew. From beginning to end. For a love that was before time for a God who is God of the present, past, and the future, for a God of the skies and the seas and the land, for a God for each of us and everything that we are, down to our very last breath. Amen.